I am really excited about the message this morning. We're going to start a new series called The Church as Family. I hope you have a study sheet. This specific topic is something I've wanted to teach on for at least the last uh, couple of years. It's sort of been on the back burner. And I heard a message last November that gave additional impetus to do it sooner instead of later. Your study sheet mentions a blog site and also the title of a book, When the Church Was Family, and the blog site, The Good Book Blog. The gentleman I listened to in November was Joe Hellerman, and he's a professor at Talbot School of Theology in California. So on one hand, he's an academic, and by the way, at the blog, you can listen or you can read the same message that I heard in November. He's very generous with the things that he puts out. But he's also on the pastoral staff at Oceanside Christian Fellowship in El Segunda, California. So he's not just an academic. He's writing as a guy with feet on the ground in the local church. The book is really encouraging. The talk was also highly encouraging. That's one of the things that led to doing this series now. Also, just providential timing. Mark mentioned the meeting tonight. We feel like as a church, we're sort of at a pivot point where it looks like God's changing us in some directions. And so to talk about God's expectations for the body of Christ, for relationships in the church, the church's family, uh, this is a specially appropriate time to do that as well. And seconding what Mark said, there's nothing ominous tonight. Uh, The world is not ending and no one's died and no one's being kicked out or anything like that. We're talking about direction we feel like God's taken us as a church, so you'll just want to be part of that conversation. In case I blow this as we work through this this morning, this is what I hope to do this morning, just in laying the groundwork for successive weeks. The first is to see that we as Christians, if we have believed in Jesus and we're a Christian that we are called and the model for our life, our lifestyle with other Christians is supposed to be after the model of a family. We are called to live life in the model of a family. And that means that we must reject the model, the typical model that you see in our culture today of the Lone Ranger Christian or this singular person who lives life on their own, by themselves. It's really a commoditization of people and relationships. We're called to reject that as a model. And then lastly, we are called to see that what God intended to bless us, the nuclear family, or what we'll call families of origin, as great as those blessings are in our families of origin, the nuclear family... God has always intended that the blessings that we are meant to experience there and the relationships that we have within those nuclear families of origin are meant to be extrapolated into the family of God and the church of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, I don't think we see this. I think this is something that we need to hear. We in this church need to hear that it's not just about our nuclear family As you'll see, this is not the priority Scripture gives ultimately to family. Ultimately, the priority in Scripture is to God's family. Not my family, time locked and here for a moment and then gone. It's God's family. So, 
Family is the model for our relationships with fellow Christians. We need to conscientiously reject this model of isolation. I can somehow live life on my own. And we need to see that God means to use the nuclear family as a means of framing what he wants for us in his family, the body of Christ. That's where we're going. Family has always been really important to me, and I grew up in a big family. I think most of you know that. And I look back on those days, and yes, there were downsides, and everything was not golden. But but I really would say I feel so blessed in the family I grew up in. And then God answered my prayers and my dreams. God answered my dreams and my prayers. This lovely young lady sitting in the front row gave me my wife, Kathy. And we got to live our dream, which was to raise a family. And so we got to raise four lovely young ladies. And man, we had a great time doing that too. All of that was so good, so rich, and so full. And I love all that. I really appreciate all that. However, as rich and full as all of that was, and maybe right now in your life, maybe is, maybe this is where you're living right now, all of that pales in its importance in comparison to God's eternal plans in his family, the body of Christ and the church. God's ultimate goal for you and I is not our participation in a nuclear family of origin. It's participation in his eternal spiritual family. The families we start in are great starting points, but they're not our final destination. They can't be. Our families of origin, they are important, but they are not ultimately defining. And this is a good thing. Families of origin don't ultimately define who you are or how God uses you or how you fit into the body of Christ. That's a good thing. No matter how great a family you've come from or how much spiritual or emotional poverty you've come from in a family, that does not define your relationship in the body of Christ. The only family that will ultimately matter to any person here today or any place on the earth is their inclusion or their omission in the family of God. The family of God on the earth is the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about, living this out. So, um, I have four daughters. My name, Halpin, what happened to that? You know, I didn't pass my name on. I struggled with this a little bit when, when we had Jessica. We gave her my Michael as her middle name, right? We got it in there. But there's no Halpins after Mike, not in my line. They're gone. Let me ask you this. How important is a surname in heaven? Not very important. You know, the only name that you'll care to be identified in in heaven is the one God gives you, your son or you're a daughter, you're a child of God. That's the only one that will matter. All the surnames, all the past family histories, none of those will matter in heaven. In fact, if you think of it this way, the gospel, when we share the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, what he's accomplished, in this light, from this frame of reference, the gospel is an invitation to people to transcend their families of origin in the line of Adam, the fallen race of man, and to join and participate in a new family. Anyone who comes to faith in Christ has 
directly, spiritually, left their family of origin already. Physically, all we give our children is a sinful nature bound and bent on death. So this is a good thing. But it's not our nuclear families don't last forever, but the family of God does. And so it's rebirth, it's inclusion into that family that matters at the end of the day. I want to suggest that as we think about our place in the body and in the church, that we start, if we don't already, that we bring as much intentionality, prayerfulness, thoughtfulness to our brothers and sisters in the body that we do to our nuclear family. Because again, as you'll see, it's God's family that is ultimately important. This is going to look different, by the way, for us. You know, when you're trying to cover a lot of ground in one morning, there's a bunch of things that you cannot say, you just can't get to. So we're not fine-tuning this this morning. We're laying the groundwork for the future. Your participation, what loyalty in the body of Christ looks like for you will vary at your stage of life. My participation in the body 30 years ago with four little children looked different than it does today, right? So we're not criticizing anyone. You've got kids and you're not at the meeting or you're taking care. That's not what we're talking about. But the sense of loyalty and place and purpose, the priority of God's family, ultimately that really is what we're talking about. So... It's not my intention to demean in any way families of origin, the nuclear family, the folks we came from, the children we're raising today. That's not it. But we want to see that in the context God describes it in the New Testament and what it's supposed to lead us to. So not demeaning the nuclear family. Uh, First, I want to dispel the myth that's prevalent in our culture, and it really is that somehow you or I, as Christians or otherwise, that we can live a life in which we arrive without connection to former generations. We arrive on the scene whole cloth. We're beholden to no one. We don't need anything. We're like the Lone Ranger. We come out of nowhere. We return to nowhere. But we're adequate. We're sufficient for whatever it is that comes along. We're cool. We're suave. We're detached. We are detached. We don't need anyone. We don't need anything. Uh, this is an image that's popular, it's popularized in our culture, but it's absolutely antithetical to life. And you just can't get this out of the Bible. So we want to start in saying the church is family. We want to start by saying family is the model. Being plugged in, being relevant to each other because we're transparent and we're invested in each other's lives, that is the model. You know, if you, uh, if you try through deficient means to negotiate life, most of us end up trying to do a couple things, and they're sort of two sides of the same coin. We try to maximize pleasure, and we try to minimize pain. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain, because that makes life feel better in the moment. Maximize one, do away with the other if we can. So think of this. We, we are in the hookup generation right now, and that means one night stands, sex partners that literally could change nightly. We've just commoditized people. See, because the issue is I want to get as much pleasure as I can. But what does this do to the people I interact with? They're just things. They're just objects. They're meaningless to me. 
I'm meaningless to them, except to the degree that we can share some pleasure in the moment. I'm seeking pleasure, but you see, I'm not connected. Kathy and I read a great article just last night on uh, a female writing about the kind of man that was desirable. And I thought, this is amazing because the article was spot on on one thing after another, written by a woman who's clearly not committed to marriage. And I thought, honey, you can't get there. These things you're describing, you can't get there if you're not in a committed, loyal marriage relationship. They can't happen. This transparency and vulnerability. But she understood, at least at some level, you can commoditize sex, you can gain the pleasure, you can hook up, but the next morning or that night, you split. There's no real personal connection. It's life on our own. Or this is the other thing for us today, and by the way, I'm not knocking technology or social media when I say this at all, but now we live in a generation in which we can sit by ourselves in a dark room by ourselves, interact with no one, and spend hour upon hour exciting the chemistry in our brain, feeling some sense of satisfaction in the moment, but absolutely disconnected from other people. So on one hand, you can do this through pornography. You know, all the studies now show us that pornography affects brain chemistry. And so there's this physiology that occurs. So a guy can sit, or women today, I'm told almost a third of the, the pornography market, Uh, It changes your brain. You get a pleasure out of this, but it's disconnected from a person. There's nothing personal about it. But guys, you can do the same thing on online games. You can do the same thing through social media. So I could have a million friends and have zero friends. I can have a million associates and know no one well and no one knows me well. That's the day and the age we live in. It's easy to default to life in isolation, or a kind of isolation. Others don't know me, I don't know them. It's life on my own. The flip side of that is pain avoidance. And by the way, we'll develop a bunch of the themes that we just touch on today in some of the coming weeks, but we don't like pain. We we like to manage pain, and that means we get rid of it any way we can. If you look at almost any kind of addiction or excessive behavior in one way or another, we're just managing pain. We're covering something up because we don't want to feel what we otherwise are going to feel. Some of you here are old enough to remember a song by Simon and Garfunkel. I don't know if this is late 60s or early 70s called I Am a Rock. This could have been written today in this culture. Listen just to the last set of lyrics. They said, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. Now we could say my iPads, my iPods, my laptop. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. And and that's the point. If I isolate myself, if I live life in isolation, I can minimize how much pain you inflict on me. And so that becomes the goal. Life as isolation to avoid pain. Now... When you read the Scripture, or if you just observe life generally, you know that isolation is not life, it's death. Separation is, in fact, a great, very basic definition of death. So if we say someone dies, we're saying their soul, their spirit, left, was separated from their body. That's death. Spiritual death, the Bible defines as the separation of a person from God forever. 
spiritual death. There's no connection. There's no relationship. It's separate. Relational death is separation from others. When we're talking about life lived with the Lone Ranger mentality, I sort of invest only as far as I need to gain pleasure or manage pain. You're just saying that's not a way to live. That's a way to die. It's not a formula for living. It's a formula for death. That is separation, relational separation. And this is the thing. Some things, you, uh, birth, birth is determinative. On one hand, we're saying your birth and your nuclear family, it doesn't ultimately define you, and, and I'm still holding that. But, but your birth or your rebirth defines who and what you are. And friends, because we're made in the image of God, God is a triunity, three persons in one God. God, by His very nature, is always in relationship. And to say that we are created in His image means you and I are hardwired. It doesn't matter how hard you work against this. You cannot get beyond your birth, your DNA, your genetics. You are wired for fellowship and relationship. And to the degree that we work against this, we aren't living, we're dying. We're ne- we are negating who and what we are. You just can't get there. Let me read. I've got three paragraphs here from Joe Hellerman. I'm reading from his book, so you can close your eyes now if you want to, again, and listen while Mike reads. Hopefully not a sleepy time voice, but listen to what Hellerman says about this. This cultural proclivity to say, live as an individual. He says, our culture has powerfully socialized us to believe that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence over the connections we have with others in both our families and our churches. So we run from the painful but redemptive relationships God has placed us in. The tune of radical individualism has been playing in our ears at full volume for decades, We are dancing to the music with gusto, and it is costing us dearly. The unique orientation of Western culture, especially contemporary American society, that best explains our propensity to abandon rather than work through the awkward, painful relationships we so often find ourselves in. Social scientists have a label for the pervasive orientation of modern American society that makes it difficult to stay connected and grow together in community. They call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. Does this resonate with you guys? Do families go through your mind as you hear this, this description? He continues, the peoples of the ancient world... This is the thing, by the way, if you read his paper online, his thesis, and we'll talk about this only briefly here this morning, his thesis was that the view of the individual as an individual instead of a person with a loyalty to a group 
the loyal group participation was the Roman culture of the day Jesus lived in and the New Testament epistles were written in. And this view of the individual as the individual, you could not get. We'll talk about this just a little bit this morning. So he's contrasting and he's showing that when the New Testament epistles were written, they were written to people who had an idea of what relationship was supposed to be about, or at least that relationship was important, and it imbued us with responsibilities that you could not easily walk away from as we do today in this culture. So he says, the peoples of the ancient world exhibit what cultural anthropologists call a collectivist view of reality. Another way of saying this is to refer to the biblical world as a strong group society. What this means is that for people in the world of the New Testament, the welfare of the groups to which they belonged took priority over their own individual happiness and relational satisfaction. A commitment to more than myself. A commitment that transcended myself that went to the group which I was a part of. He laments in conclusion... Why do we continue foolishly to operate as if our own immediate happiness is of greater value than the redemptive relationships God has placed us in? And of course, if you think of, for Christians, this should be a no-brainer. Jesus died for us. He didn't live for himself. He died for us. He died for the group. And that's the model he leaves us. I'll just mention John Donne, one of my favorite uh, British authors, and some of you may know the lines even if you don't know where they come from, but he was very sick, he was contemplating his own death, and he heard the local church bells toll, as they did at a funeral. Someone was being buried. And out of that examination of his own life, he wrote in part, no man is an island entire of itself. In that moment of realization, his own mortality in his sights, he, he realized No man is an island. You cannot live independent of others. And his conclusion famously was, do not ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. It it tolls for you. You have lost, no matter who died, it's not your funeral, you have still lost because you're, you're fit in, you're knit in to humanity around you. So don't worry about the particular individual it was, you have still lost something. We are like clods on the same continent. We are inherently tied in to one another. If you switch this to the New Testament as well, just thinking about the Bible's call to see relationship and family as the model, not isolationism, not island living, think of this. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and therefore you and I, he started by saying, Our Father. You know, more often than not, you and I probably pray on our own. When Jesus taught them to pray, he started with the plural, our Father. This means either the model assumes that you're praying with a group or that when you're praying, you're praying for a group, with a group in mind. That's the model for Jesus' prayer, our Father. Paul addresses his letters in the name of our Father. As soon as he writes, he says, it's corporately our Father that I'm writing from. He could say, my Father. But if you read the opening to all of his epistles, it's always plural, our Father. The New Testament writers routinely use the plural brothers, 
not singular brother, but brothers. And this isn't just because they're addressing a group, a plurality, but it's because the carrying out of the doctrines and the prescriptions Paul is talking about take place within a plurality, within a group context. So the New Testament assumes life in relationship, life as family. Think of this too. You know, the average age today for marriage is about 29 or 30 for guys, and I think it's 26 or 27 for ladies. And we've got lots and lots, not just in this church, our culture, we have lots of single adults. And you know, there's a temptation if you're in that group, because very few of these folks, guys or gals will tell you this is what they dreamed of for themselves. Most of these folks want to be married. But if you think about the call to live life in the body of Christ with God's family as your family, the single adult is as fully plugged in as a brother or sister in that family as a person in a marriage or a person with children or without children. You see, we all come in at the same level. We all have that relationship. We're siblings in the body together, whatever else our status is or isn't in this culture. It's interesting just to remember, too, Jesus was never married. Was he a loser? Jesus never had sex. Does that mean there's something wrong with him? So, but he's the head of the body, the church. That was a single man. Or how about Paul the Apostle? Might have been married. If he was, he was widowed because he lived life as a single man as he wrote and lived out that New Testament period. The guy that writes all the letters to the churches, he was single too. He sure doesn't look like he was minimized in the body of Christ, does he? Because he was single. You can see what this means though. If it's God's family and that's the call, we're all in. If you have faith in Christ, you're a member of that family in equal standing with everyone else. So on the front end, we want to say, we want to be aware that we live in a culture that highly values living life as an individual disconnected from a group. And you can't get there, guys. This should not be appealing in our minds. We should understand that we are hardwired because we're in God's image to live life in solidarity, in loyal, familial bonds with others in the family of God, the body of Christ. That is the call. Isolated island living is a way to die, not a way to live. So we want to take those thoughts captive and realize we're called to live in relationship in the body of Christ as family. Uh, This is point two on your study sheet, family loyalties. Now, certainly no one appreciates the family more than the one who created it, right? That would be God. And that would include Jesus. They created the family. The family is their idea. Ephesians 4, Paul says, every family on earth derives its name from God the Father. Families are God's idea. All of this is God's idea. So no one values it more highly than God. And certainly families, to grow up in a family, just to be part of a family, a nuclear family, a family of origin, this is great blessing. There's no downside there. Having said that, We in this room, I'll bet, just because we're fairly represented, probably have all kinds of histories and backgrounds. For any of us in here, some of us have come from families in which we grew up, we felt loved, we felt nurtured. Uh, Maybe our parents were Christians and they passed on the faith to us at an early age. and, And we have this glowing image of family and that's a good thing. But 
For others of us, that's not our history. And, and maybe we look back at our family of origin and we say, it wasn't much. There's, I wish I was born in a different family or I hated it or it was hurtful. That's, that's true for some of us. For some of us others, we're in a family right now and we think, I wish it were different. I wish things were different. I wish he was different, she was different, I was different, things were different. So all of us are bringing a perspective of family in, you know, sort of written from our own history and past. And we want to hold that all just a little bit loosely so that we can focus on God's view of family and then how we're to extrapolate that to the family of God. I want to start with this uh, convicting and and slicing text from Mark 3. This is a passage that both Matthew and Mark record. And if you read just before this, this is Mark 3.31. Jesus had been busy. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's on the road. He's healing. And lots of crowds are following him. And he goes back to his house. And it's crowded. And there's all these people around. Verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and they called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I think just because of where we live and when we live, we read these and, well, that's, that's nice. Isn't that great? There's a spiritual family and, and that's important. And isn't that great? These words would not have sounded great when Jesus said them. They would have sounded cutting and insulting. It would have sounded like a great put down in the time and the place he spoke these words. These weren't nice words by Jesus when he said it. Uh, these were cutting words. Um, think of the culture in which Jesus says this. Now, again, remember, Jesus formed the family. So he's not against families, right? He, he's the author. He and the Father, they're the author of the family. So he's not against families. The culture Jesus is speaking to, they're family-oriented, they're family-identified. The Jew says, I belong to Father Abraham. I know who my daddy is. I know whose line I come from. But further, think of this. They're defined by their tribe, aren't they? What's the tribe? Well, the tribe is who my father was related to the sons and grandsons of Jacob. I'm further identified by my family of origin, by the nuclear family. goes even further. How was an individual identified in Israel at this time? By who their father was. Jesus, the son of Joseph. Think of the old Charlton Heston movie, Judah Ben-Hur. It's who am I the son of? This is a culture identified and defined by families of origin. And Jesus says he essentially disses his family of origin and says, this is my family. People that I'm not related to by blood or kin, but I'm related to spiritually through a common bond in God the Father. This was radical when he said it. We miss it. This was radical. Jesus is also... The eldest son, the surviving eldest son, Joseph, his father's absent, he's the guy with the responsibility for this family, and he distances himself from it. This was radical when this was said, that the more important family is not this group next to me, my siblings calling outside. It's this group right here 
who have a relationship with the same God. In fact, at this time too, it's important to remember, uh, Jesus said his siblings at this time, they're not believers. John 7, 5 says not even his brothers were believing in him. So he was showing that there's a difference between people I was born with and grew up with and people who have faith in my Father. There's a different kind of relationship. You see the same thing in Paul. Uh, Romans 2, I'll, I'll hurry through some of this just for time's sake. Romans 2 and Romans 9, Paul uses uh, the identification of the Jews to show that there's something more important than Jewish life and heritage. So in uh, Romans 2, he says, you're not a Jew if you're one outwardly, and circumcision is not that which is done to your flesh. That is, spiritually, that has no bearing on anything. But you're a Jew, you're in that special familial relationship with God the Father, if you're one inwardly, and you've had a circumcision of the heart, you've been reborn, you have a new birth into God's family. It says essentially the same thing in Romans 9. So, Birth into the Jewish family, there was a lot of upside there, but birth into that Jewish family was at the end of the day inadequate to participate in the family of God. If that's true for families in Jesus' day in the Jewish group, that would be true today for us in spades, wouldn't it? Supremely so. The Jews were God's covenant people. We weren't separate from rebirth in Christ. But if it's true in the Jewish culture, it's true especially today. Uh, Shift this discussion and this comparison too to the Roman culture that the New Testament epistles were written in and to. This is where Hellerman hangs his hat, basically, if you read his article online. Um, He points out that like the Jewish culture, there's dissimilarities as well as similarities, but like the Jewish culture, the Roman culture was born of patrilineage, it was important who your father was, so much so that a wife was expected to have greater loyalty and felt a greater responsibility to her father, her siblings, and her children than she did her husband because the preeminent thing that was important was the father's bloodline. The husband will never be in the father's bloodline. It was considered more disloyal to not provide for or to in any way betray a sibling than it was a spouse. But you can see where this goes. Now, Hellerman's quick... uh, I'll read his quote here in a minute. He's quick to disassociate this as the model. He's He's not defending the model, okay? Because biblically, we know the closest relationship you can have on earth is with your spouse. So he's, he's not upending that. But what he's saying is, when that Roman heard the gospel and believed and got this letter from Paul that said to them, your brothers are the family of God, this has huge meaning for them. Because now the kind of loyalty that was expected of them for their siblings or their father or their own descendants, now that gets transferred to people they are not otherwise related to. So just as Jesus' words to the Jewish culture are striking at the way they say, minimizing family of origin, 
maximizing the family of God, this is too to the Gentile Christians to be told your siblings to whom you owe ultimate allegiance and loyalty are not your kinship group, but the brothers and sisters beside you in the body of Christ. This was absolutely radical. Guys, this is why there's some great stories in this book, by the way, too. Christians were seen as totally disloyal because they claimed a new family. They they were seen as the worst of the worst because in the Roman culture they had dissed ultimately the loyalty they were assumed to owe to their bloodline. Jesus comes along and says, your ultimate loyalty is not to your family of origin. It's to God and to God's family. So this was radical, radical stuff in their day. Hellerman says, I guess I'll just paraphrase here, the Mediterranean family system is not what he's advocating, okay? But that this is what informed the people receiving the New Testament epistles. So when Paul says, treat each other like brothers and sisters, this was radical. And by the way, when you read the stories of the early church of how this followed through, and we'll look at some of these in coming weeks, they took this seriously. They took this seriously in ways I don't think we ever have. The willingness to pay a price to express family bonds and loyalty to brothers and sisters in Christ, the early church took this seriously. And that is in part, Hellerman argues, and I believe it's true, love was so fully demonstrated to the Gentile world that was part of the affirmation of the gospel. And that's why, in part, the proclamation of the gospel went out in power and people believed. They saw the reality of it lived out in people who were willing to give everything they had to others in Christ they were not otherwise related to. It was the love of Christians for Christians living out the call to family bonds that shook up that Roman world and the Jewish world. So winding down, you and I know, we talk about this all the time, that marriage, per Paul in Ephesians 5, we understand that marriage was always meant to be a model of the relationship Christ has with the church. Paul says that directly in Ephesians 5. But guys, the same thing is true of the family. The family was always meant to be a mirror or a lens to another family, ultimately to God's family. So we take the lessons we learn in marriage and we say those are dynamics in our relationship with Christ. That's Christ's redemptive love for us. We take the lessons we learn in our nuclear family, support, responsibility, loyalty, etc., and we take those and we enlarge them, we extrapolate them, and we say, now that's what families were pointing to is life in the body of Christ, life in God's family. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and Matthew 23, 8, Jesus says, you are all brothers. Paul talks to Timothy about treating each other as family members. I'll let you read those later. Uh, every family on this earth, every family here, you're temporary. You know, my, our family, we're a family. Kathy and I are a family, but our child raising days, they're gone. You know what? It seems like it was just yesterday. We were two young things just starting out. It's over. Every family is temporary and it ends. There's continuity because we have children, right? Successive families. Mike and Kathy helping have helped produce four new families. That's a good thing. But our family as it was doesn't exist anymore. 
for new families. Every family, every nuclear family on this earth is temporary, and that is not ultimately what God is after. God is after something more permanent. Isn't this interesting too? You know, it's for lack of seeing God's call to live in these kinds of loyal bonds uh, that have led to the kind of culture we're in, you know, high rates of divorce. We do. People in the church, if, if I'm ticked with you, what do I do? I leave. If my marriage isn't going great, and, and I, I hope nobody feels condemned this morning, okay? But this is the culture. If, if our marriage is going south a little bit, we're done. We just move on. It, we could say spiritually, if I'm the enemy and I want to wreck what God does, wrecking the family would be a good thing, wouldn't it? And you know what? The enemy is highly successful in wrecking families in this culture, isn't he? Big time. Do you know what? God never made a promise to your family and mine that he made to the church, did he? Because of the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, Jesus said, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Isn't that? That's good. You can take that to the bank. Families are temporary. We're subject to hurts and failures in ways that will never be true of the family of God. And so this morning, my... My hope is that we just start thinking about and maybe querying ourselves, are we bringing the kind of intentionality to the family of God, sense of responsibility, personal loyalty, that I'm willing to stick around with you and you're willing to stick around with me? Are we willing to begin to see the church from that lens, in that frame of reference? Are we bringing the kind of importance to the church, to God's family that God means us to? Are we extrapolating not only the marriage relationship to Christ and the church, but do we understand that our families, our family lives, I hope they're all rich and full. They are only temporary, however good or bad they are. And they're meant to point us to the ultimate eternal family where we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, living with our Savior, who is also our eldest brother, in heaven with him, in that family bond forever. That's where this thing goes. And that's the kind of focus we need to be bringing to the church and the relationships in it. So, Father, help us to see things as you do. Help us to embrace you. Father, for anybody this morning that may not know you as their father, I just pray that your Spirit's making you so real to them that they just fall into your family this morning. And Lord, for, for those of us who have, thank you so much for redeeming us, for calling us by a new name, giving us your name, new birth, new family, new hope, new eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.